This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. so great seeing you the other day yeah it was good to see you too when we did that live podcast we never when, see each other when we were alive in front of an audience <laughs> <laughs> we were alive it was philadelphia we talked people you could say we were alive in philadelphia <laughs> this is all a weird way of saying we had a lot of fun in our live show yesterday well we recorded it yesterday as we record this it will be two days ago as you listen to this, or more days ago. Depending on when you listen to this. Welcome to mm-hmm. Overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And if you were able to make it out to the Free Library of Philadelphia, thanks so much. If, and if you came out and hung out with us after, like we had a lot of fun meeting some of you and chatting with you. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're wondering when you can come to another one of those... Well, we don't know. Stay tuned. <laughs> uh, we've gotten some folks being like, "Oh, when when can you do this again or whatever?" And we're certainly looking into another year of the Philly Podfest because we love those guys and they also helped us with the free library event. But we are certainly long term thinking about we stretching our sea legs a little bit. And we would like to. We yeah, we would like to do things in another city. We've gotten some requests for New York. We've gotten some requests for Boston. I think those are both probably doable based on like the the people we know in those cities and who could give us a place to crash if somebody wants to write like a an indivisible guide for rallying listeners to come to a live show for us to make sure there are enough people there to make it worth everyone's time Mm -hmm. gotta put butts in them seats yeah here's what your members of congress care about butts in the seats (laughs) so (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll keep you posted and uh this one also came up a little on short notice so we'll try to we'll try to make sure that we have as long a uh, a lead on future live shows so that y'all can make plans. Andrew Craig Let's talk about a book. Let's talk about uh the book that you read cuz I read the book for the live show. So what did you read for this our not live show that we are recording? Live in our places of recording. <laughs> God. Craig and I are both sick. <laughs> we both, like, independently were on the couch until 4 p.m. today. Yes, that's true. And we only got up then because we had to. That's also true. We had other things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, if at my point... voice is, like, if my voice is richer and it's got, like, a deeper <laughs> bass than it normally does, my, I'm way my, down here in the basement. My oak-aged voice going come, on over here. Come on down to my basement, kids. Ooh. Uh, read books. Read some, I got some books down here. At one point today, I was We all wearing... float down here, kids. <laughs> I was wearing two hoodies because it felt better. I'm just wearing one hoodie now. I wear hoodies never. You do never I'm, wear hoodies. I like I like to feel I like to be comfortable, but I also like to feel like I look okay. Yeah, you and wearing you, hoodies is a little it's a little like cash. Mm, you like a it's collared a shirt. You like a collared yeah. shirt, and I don't know you to wear a hoodie with a collared shirt because you are not a dot com executive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, you read a book for this week. We're gonna talk about it, and then we're gonna go to bed. <laughs> Probably in that order. <laughs> um, I read a book called Zami, A New Spelling of My Name by Audrey Lord. Uh, she calls it a biomythography. Yeah. Which, as far as I can tell, is like her version of Fetch. Like, I don't know that she can make biomythography <laughs> oh, happen. Okay. But it's essentially a, a, an autobiography that she wrote about herself in 1982. She's an African-American um, poet, and she... Yeah, what what can you tell me about her? You got some stuff about her. Yeah, her her self-proclaimed like moniker is is that she's a black lesbian mother warrior poet, Uh, which is pretty. It sounds pretty accurate. Yes, and she was born in 1934 in New York City to two parents of Caribbean descent. 
Um, she died in 1992 after a long battle with uh, cancer, which she chronicled in the Cancer Journals. I, I'm wondering if it's plural or not, but she wrote she wrote a book called The Cancer Journals mm-hmm. um, that dealt with her, you know, long history with that disease. Um, and she was a poet from an early age. She was uh, the youngest of three and apparently like so nearsighted as to be legally blind. Yeah. Which is, I've had students like that and it's always a tough, I feel so bad and it's a tough thing to deal with because it's like, I'm nearsighted, but it's not that bad. And I don't know, I don't know where the like, what legally blind, I should know what that means is what I'm saying. As I, stu- I mean, as it I doesn't. It doesn't mean this. they. It doesn't mean they can't say and can't see anything. But like, I don't know. You say you feel so bad, but is it is it bad to feel bad, or should you be trying? I guess I feel bad because I don't to, know what I should be doing to make to a space help more without, welcoming without for someone the, who is legally blind. sure. Yeah, and you want you want to help, but you don't also want to like single them out and make them feel correct weird. Correct. Yes, mm-hmm. that's what I mean. But Thank I mean, you. so in in the forties, when she's attending school and is legally blind, like nobody really makes any allowances for it at all. So oh, we can good. say, like, most things, most attention will be better than that. Or <laughs> sure, uh, she apparently had a uh, difficult relationship with her parents who were very busy. I'm sure we'll get into some of her biography stuff through this biomythography, right? So I don't want to dwell on yeah, all Yeah, it's, it's about a very um, specific um, part of her life, but not really about her professional life at okay, all. So, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, so she had a relationship with her parents that has to do with their background and how busy they were in their careers. Um, she had trouble communicating growing up, which like she wasn't talking until she was like four or something, and she latched onto poetry as a form of expression. Uh, she used to tell people how she felt by reciting poems back to them, like she would memorize a poem, and when someone said like Audrey, what happened to you? She would recite a poem, and somewhere in that poem, a line or feeling uh, would reflect, you know, what she was thinking. Yeah, I mean, as, as somebody who also speaks in poetry, I feel this some is you. With yes, her. yeah, <laughs> this is you. Uh, she did have a poem published in Seventeen magazine when she was in high school, which good work. Uh, and she graduated from Hunter College High School in '51. She spent a year out at the National University of Mexico. Does this get covered in the book or something um, like yeah, that? Yeah, she. Okay. Yeah, she does. You do get a little bit of her travels. Great. Um, it's mostly about her childhood and young adulthood. Okay. Um, she would later come back and graduate from Hunter College in 59, get a library of science master. Shout out to our library friends uh, from Columbia in 61. Uh, she did get married and have two kids in the late 60s and then divorced that guy. Uh, and then she moved down to Mississippi as a writer in residence at Tougaloo College, uh, where she met Francis Clayton, who was her partner until 1989. And I have I was introduced to Audre Lorde as a writer or just as a as an essayist and thinker through folks who are in academia. Like um, I've been, I she even got on my radar because of our friends the Black Hotties. Was uh, I even think thought that we should cover her for the show because mm-hmm. um, I had not really heard of her that much myself. Yeah, same. Um, this is my first exposure to her, and and it sounds like. Uh, her role as both a mentor and uh, writer in residence and teacher at Tougaloo kind of was a symbiotic one for her work as both a poet and uh, a writer and a feminist writer. Um, And then she spent some time in Berlin in the eighties. She started the Afro German movement, which was kind of a movement to, uh, create like an identity for folks similar to an african-american identity in germany mm-hmm. um and yeah and then she you know towards the end of her career there was the cancer journals and then this as you said was 1982 so this is pretty late in her writing um a lot of her poetry work was much earlier um so you have not much earlier but earlier you have uh, collections like new york head shop and museum in 1974 uh, Cole in 1976 and the Black Unicorn in 1978, uh, and a lot of her poetry has to do with 
love and lesbian relationships as well as race and discrimination and racial injustice um and then other another important theme is uh, parent child relationships in her work some a lot of that's in the black unicorn um and then the cancer journals is a is a one of her bigger works of prose as is uh zami right andrew is that what you said yeah that's what i that's the pronunciation that i found cool. um A- audrey lord we were i was overthinking last week but zami is i know whether to go zami or zami mm. i think usually you if right you way. hear it yeah usually <laughs> if you hear it and you cringe it might not be the right pronunciation sure uh, and I read that she dropped the Y from Audrey because she thought that the double like the double E, e was at the end was of the name pleasing yeah. aesthetically to her, mm-hmm. um, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, and yeah, the other other thing just worth noting about her work as a writer is that she's you know cited a lot in modern feminism critique, feminist critique. Um, as a critique of as a critic of modern feminism in a lot of important ways mm-hmm. um, and if you are kind of in tune with a lot of that dialogue right now you've probably been hearing about intersectionality or folks have been trying to get you to read about intersectionality which you should uh and a yeah lot remind that- remind me to come back to some of that later because okay. she doesn't she doesn't spend a ton of this book doing that explicitly but there are some sections where she kind of throws a little bit of shade at at the later feminist movements and how it, how they took stuff from movements that existed before, but that were kind of marginalized and, and not really paid much attention to. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because that term, I think we can, as I've been able to find has like was, intersectionality specifically. Yeah. Okay. yeah was coined in 89 by a scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, I would be, I would happily be corrected by that. If someone knows a little bit more about than me um but there are works by uh audrey lord like the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house which is an essay she wrote in 80, in 84 uh critiquing the the inherent uh racism within some aspects of feminism that kind of conflated un- unity with homogeneity um like her whole as far as i can read and maybe this is reflected in the work as well, is that like identifying difference does not mean creating barriers between those differences. It actually mm-hmm. allows you or should enable you to create more effective change. Um, and a lot of her critique of feminism uh, that she saw predominantly by white women um, was kind of erasing the idea that black women had a different experience. Yeah, there are. um, She deals with that mostly in this book through highlighting a couple of false equivalencies that come up as Mm. a um, that that impact her as a member of like both the black community and the gay community. So yeah, we'll 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 definitely talk about that a little bit. Um, Is there anything else about uh, Lord we should go into, or should we take a little break first? Uh, I just want to mention that she has two uh, things that bear her name in New York that are pretty cool. The Callen, Callen Lord Community Health Center in New York, which provides care for LGBTQ folk who, without without any regard for their ability to pay. Um, and then the Audre Lord Project in NYC also, which is a community org for uh, LGBTQ youth and, you know, does activism for uh, immigration issues and prison reform and AIDS, HIV stuff. So she's had a, a sustained and noted impact yeah, that's uh, a solid a legacy, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, and so I just wanted people to know, like, there's a deep well of stuff to read about her in addition to reading her work that people should probably know about. Yeah, there you go. Let's take a break. All right, break time. Craig, what do you know about websites? I know I like to move it, move it. What does that have to do with websites? Well, if I were to make my next move, where would I go? I guess you go to Squarespace. Uh, (laughs) Squarespace is a website that helps you make other websites. Um, They give... (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> they give you beautiful the dumb thing that you said. award-winning templates uh that you don't know you don't need to know how to build them yourself but you can you know use their drag and drop tools to figure it out for yourself to make the website that you want 
That's the thing about Squarespace is you can be an idiot like Craig. That's me. And you can make dumb jokes, but you can still you can still use it to make a website. Overduepodcast.com, our website, that's on Squarespace. And I use Both it our... like every week like an idiot and it still yeah. works. Uh-huh. He hasn't broken it yet, and it's been almost four years. Wow, really? Don't don't tell me that. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> uh, we both made our wedding websites on Squarespace. It's pretty cool. Um, it's an all-in-one platform. Uh, you never have to worry about installing any patches or upgrades. You never have to worry about digging around in code. Um, if you do have questions, they have a 24-7 customer service that they provide. We've dealt with them a few times, and they've always been very attentive. Um, you get a domain when you sign up, and... Mm-hmm. Um, you can also do commerce, and they offer all kinds of other tools. Like they, you can host podcasts, you can host commerce sites, you could do a personal blog there. It's just, it's it's a lot of different kinds of things they let you do. And, yeah, we're, uh, it's, we're it's in real the, easy to use. We're still in the like New Year's resolution haze. It's also like a brave new world that we live in, where people are trying to figure out what they're going to do next. And like, oh man, it's it's February. New Year's resolutions are all broken by now. Maybe it's time you like cemented your idea with the website like if you're gonna do something new this year make a website about it and (laughs) give people the link to your website and then everyone will hold you to it that's called a podcast right yeah if if like me you respond primarily to shame based external motivators then building a public website to declare your intent might be helpful yeah. Um, you can start your free trial today at squarespace.com. And if you enter the offer code overdue, you can get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, make your next move. So, Andrew, Craig, tell me about this book. What's this book about? Okay. This book's about Audrey Lord. Oh, cool. We just talked about her. Yeah. So, what a coincidence. <laughs> Okay, but it's not poetry. <laughs> it's like a it's a, it's and it's not a novel. But it's not maybe... poetry. It's not a novel. Like I guess her use of the of the term biomyth biomythography, which I did look up, and it's like it. The definitions I found say that it weaves autobiography, cultural history, myth, and ecology. Ooh, um, recreating the way we experience ourselves as creatures of a living web in a story much greater than the scope of our imagination. Sure. Um, I found this on some blog somewhere, someone's WordPress site. Checks out, checks out. Uh, (laughs) I think it's primarily autobiography, but I guess she does leave the door open here for for some of these experiences to be a little embellished or, I don't know, like expanded beyond the stuff that actually happened. This is actually a question I wanted to ask you is like, this is a long autobiography that is written many years after the fact that is filled with like minute detail, like the things she thought and felt on a specific day, like as she crossed a specific cross street in New York city. Like I could never accurately write anything like that. If you asked me to write an autobiography. No, I couldn't. I can remember stuff in like the broadest strokes possible. Like if you asked me stuff that happened like two days ago, I would, I need to stop and think about it to even tell you what I had for dinner, which I'm going to sit and do right now while you respond to my question. The only, the only way that I could even a- attempt to accomplish this is if you could, through some sort of like magical machine, line up. I had I had leftover stir fry. Thank you. Um, if you could line up all of the smells of my life, and like play them for me in order. Like a I smell could, playlist, like a smell, like a, like a snotify or something. <laughs> you could, you could get me to re-experience all of my emotions in order, because like smell for me unlocks a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I could re-experience all those smells, there's a chance I could tell you how I felt like crossing the street. But I can't guarantee that I would know all the smells. So you'd have to also have like cue cards. It's a whole. Then you're just doing yeah. a weird play for me. <laughs> like I have, a, I have a similar thing with music. I guess is a lot of the time for music, especially when I haven't listened to it in a long time. Like if I'm going back to something I listened to years ago and haven't listened to since, I can remember the time in my life when I was super into whatever that music was. I just 
watched. And that's like a general yeah, marker. Yeah, I watched Lady Gaga perform with Metallica, and my my past oh, yeah. selves were in a war with each oh, other. Oh man. <laughs> It was nuts. I remember like 2010 when I was listening to all kinds of Lady Gaga and I was like, man, she's really good. Like she probably can't do anything bad. Like all the music she's released so far has been really great. And then she released Born This Way and I was like, well, we're all mortals, I guess. <laughs> so I guess what this what this book does is by calling it a biomethography, she's both empowering herself to be as creative as she wants to be because to get the points of her story across and also like freeing herself from the burden of fact in a in a narrative way but also saying this is broadly true this is my experience F- yeah freight that's interesting oh that's such a intricate dance mm-hmm. right because i don't think that we should walk away from like your reading of this book and and totally feel like everything that happens in that book is true. Right? I mean, I or, take I take it to mean that she does not lie about major events, and, and lie even is too harsh a word. She does sure. not fabricate, yeah, um, emotions and major events, but she is willing to color outside the lines a little bit on like details and I don't know the specific sense and and visual sensations and, and things like that of, cool. of cool. moments in the story that's that's my interpretation i don't know if it's 100 percent right but that's what we got I, yeah like i i'm i'm gonna say that like everything in the story rings true to the to to the extent that i i don't know i can't really confirm whether it happened or not you I weren't not there. there yeah it's true but <laughs> i it's it rings true to me is okay what I'm saying. cool so what what happens what's true Okay, so this is a story about um, Audrey Lord's childhood. Like the first third of it or so is about her childhood and her relationship with her mother, mm-hmm. who is a like as you mentioned, um, she and her father are both uh, black and they're West Indian. Um, her mother is light skinned, like way more light skinned than she is. Like light skinned enough that she could pass for white if she needed to. Okay. Um. But still, like, very aware of her blackness, especially as, as she's bringing up, like, her three black kids. Um, and we get mostly through this section, we get Audrey's tension with her mother, and also her tension at school, like, not being able to see early on, um, not speaking for a long time, like, just generally marching to the beat of her own drum and not really fitting in with any particular group of, of mm-hmm. people until she gets to high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once we move beyond that, we get to her uh, first gay relationships and her experience as a young woman, like late teens, early 20s into maybe mid 20s, um, exploring the gay scene, mostly in New York City in the 50s, Ooh. which is like before 60s counterculture, like before, I don't know, like, I don't think gay rights... Like, this is before African-American civil rights, even, to say nothing of, like, gay civil rights. So yeah. it's it's a very it's a very excluded group of, of people who she's, like, who she's identifying with. And um, so the book is mostly about, like, okay, not only is she black, not only is she a black woman, not only is she a black gay woman, but she's a black out gay woman. Okay. Which... Like very, very few people in this world that she lives in even are. And a lot of the people who are like they she she talks a little bit about, you know, there there are like Bush people and there are femme people mm-hmm. and she is not comfortable. She she doesn't feel like strong and aggressive enough to be Butch, nor does she feel like traditionally feminine enough to be a femme. So she's in this weird in between space where even like even within the sub 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 culture of out gay black women, she doesn't quite fit in. Sure, sure. Um, huh. So it's mostly about like her her relationships and her and, and there's actually a quote from the end of the book, like the epilogue, 
which sums up kind of what what she's going through here is she says um, every woman I have ever loved has left her print upon me where I loved some invaluable piece of myself apart from me so different that I had to stretch and grow in order to recognize her and in that growing we came to separation that place where work begins another meeting so she's talking about herself through the lens of her formative relationships, mostly. Which is an identifiable human thing mm-hmm. from from any... And as you're saying, how old is she when this is happening? Um, She is like late teens into early to mid-20s when she's sure. getting into this stuff. Like, like people think that she's... She lets people think that she's older if she wants to because, like, everybody's super racist and they can't, like, they can't tell with black people how old they are. So uh, that's cool. Cool. Mm-hmm. Cool job, New York City. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know if I want to go all the way through individual events, but like, what are you, what are you curious about? What threads do you want to pull on? Let's pull on the, on the parent child thread first. Okay. So I, I feel like that gets, to the start of where, from what I can tell, Lord kind of comes down on uh, differences within differences. So, like, what is the, what's up with their relationship in that first part of the book, and how does that, how does Lord carry that through into the rest of the, or as part of herself moving forward? Like, what are the specifics of her relationship with her mom and stuff? Her mom is a really interesting character. And I think like I, I get a real sense of regret on her part in a few places that she and her mom were just so unable to understand each other so often. Sure. Yeah. Um, but her, you know, her mom moves to America. She's like 26 or 27, I think. And her husband's around the same age. And so she's moving to this place where racism is super entrenched Mm -hmm. and she doesn't like, she has a pretty good grasp on the language, but she's always, you know, she's as a first generation immigrant to some extent, she's always going to be kind of an outsider, you know? Uh Um, And, and Lors talks a few times about how her mom's face gets when she talks about home, home being like the West Indies. Yeah. Yeah. So when they go, they go on vacations to the beach during summers, a few years and, she just talks about the way that her mom's face sort of she, how far away she seems when she's sitting on the beach, just thinking about home, like home mm. being this far away place that you can't quite get back to. And it's just like, it's not real, you know? Yeah. And then do, does her mom seem then resentful of the insufficient home that they have? It's here in not, the States. Not so much, but I I feel like she, wants to protect her kids from some of the bad stuff about their new home to the extent that she can't even accept that it happens, you know, like she, she pretends so hard in some cases that, that that just becomes reality. And, and, and so she's, she can be hard to deal with in that way. Like here's a, here's a little bit about her mother that I think encapsulates some aspects of that. Um, and finally, my mother knew how to frighten children into behaving in public. She knew how to pretend that the only food left in the house was actually a meal of choice, carefully planned. She knew how to make virtues out of necessities. Hmm. So she's talking about being like poor black immigrants in America in like the 20s, 30s, like yeah, just after the, the Great Depression. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And talking about how her mother like. She could sense war coming, and so she saves, like, every time they buy coffee and sugar in the months leading up to World War II, she holds back a fraction of it and, like, puts it under the cupboard. And then whenever people come over during the war, like, they never leave without a little bit of sugar or coffee or, you know, that that heavily rationed stuff that mm. that is so hard to get otherwise. So that that is a, hmm, okay, so that speaks to, like, positive elements of like how she looks back on her mom i think yeah looking back on her mom with the with the perspective of an adult i think she can really identify like she can she has an easier easier time connecting with her mom's motivations i think yeah yeah and like even even if her relationship with her mom was often like fraught she can looking back know how hard it must have been and like know how much sacrifice it it took sometimes to sure 
So so there's one major anecdote that I think really brings us home where um, little Audrey decides to run for like a class president position, basically. OK. And so she and she is she's been told that ultimately like the votes votes will matter, but it also it's going to be decided in part by whoever the smartest person is. And she knows she's smart. She knows she's pretty good in school. And so she's confident that she stands a pretty good chance of winning this election. So she's, she's going, she's got some like money that she's either saved or maybe stolen from her parents, like a little bit at a time. And just like going and like trying to ingratiate herself to, to a bunch of these little middle school kids And she comes home and she tells her mom, you know, we're having an election and I think I have a pretty good chance of winning. And her mom says, why are you what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this instead of paying attention in school? Like I and when when you lose this or I don't remember, she says when or if, but she she essentially says, like, I don't want to on Monday. I don't want to hear you crying about how you lost the election. Oh, boy. And so she does lose the election because okay. everybody's racist, just racist. It's racism. Okay. Of course. And so, and little Audrey doesn't quite understand racism because her mom's kind of shielding them from it a little bit. Huh. Okay. So like, and then there's another thing where like sometimes people would spit on them on the street when she was young. And she says like, as a teenager, isn't it funny how like, People don't spit as much as they used to. And she and she never made the connection that people were like spitting on them specifically because they're like a black family. Uh, okay. And she sees this like a moment of of pain in her mom's eyes. And it's I don't know. Do, do you get the the gist of? Yeah, I guess I, if there's anything else that feels tough from the mom on her aside from the election anecdote, because it's. From what I could, I mean, hear- there's there's a lot of there's a lot. I I am. You're editing down a strained relationship. I'm editing down a strange a strange relationship, and I'm also giving you. I'm giving you a lot of what the reader takes away about her mom from. The stories that are told. Okay. So you get a lot, of, and, and all these anecdotes. I I assume her mom had had died by the time she was writing this book, and so I think a lot of it takes on some an almost like wistful sort of. Like a remembrance. Yeah, like like we didn't get along, and I know why we didn't get along, and it makes sense that we didn't get along, but because she, she was like very, she was very rigid in her in her ways, and I was, you know, as a as a black gay woman in New York, like very rebellious and counterculture, and we just never could see eye to eye on a lot of stuff, and it it makes sense that, that happened, but also adult Audrey can look back at what her mom did and be, be understanding and be a little proud even. Yeah. Of how, of course. like of how tough her mom was in the yeah. face of like so much stuff. Yeah, for sure. Okay. How does that inform? Like when does, when does Audrey decide to come out or does even just like, when is she able to say that she is gay uh, or a lesbian, like what is? How does that work for her? And to, so I'll say upfront that the book does make like one mention of her being possibly bisexual, but I okay. think, especially if you're talking about the '50s, I just assume that even within the gay community, people kind of people assume that you either were or you weren't, and that's the thing that we continue to wrestle with today is like believing that people who say they're bisexual are actually bisexual. Sure. Um. But so, so, and that would, like, she's having all these gay experiences in the fifties. And then later you, you, as you mentioned, she, she has children, somebody, and she gets married to somebody like, I, I, I don't think that's probably not her going back in the closet, you know, like, no, no, like she's so out. And so like has so many scars from being out that I don't think it's her. Like she doesn't seem the kind to like meekly retreat in the face of society you know no, that does not seem her way it does not <laughs> seem like the lord's way mm-hmm. get <laughs> the it lord's way. i see what you did there um so does she I feel like i'm talking but she yeah so she has this relationship with this white boy and she gets pregnant and they're like their relationship is falling apart so like she doesn't want to keep it but of mm. course abortion is not 
like it's not legal, uh, legal. it's not available. So there's this whole story about her getting uh not a coat hanger abortion, but like a you know a, a homemade one, I guess for lack of a better sure, word. Sure. And just talking about her going through all these like the horrible bleeding and the cramps and not knowing whether she was okay or not. And um, that's pretty much the only straight relationship of hers that we get in this book. This happens when she's like 17 or 18. Okay. And um, after that, she's just sort of hanging out with women until she hooks up with one. And is it presented in the story as her first or that that's my main question like, well, well she yeah. she gets to a point where she says i'm gonna have an affair with a woman like i'm gonna i'm yeah, gonna hook are. up with a woman heck yeah she you decides are. this like way before she actually does it okay okay and then from there like all of her relationships in the in the book are with women so she's there's this one that she has let me see if i can remember the names i've got a She's got a friend named Jenny, or, or which is short for Genevieve, which she doesn't, this isn't a romantic relationship because they're still um, kids or like teens, mm-hmm. but it's, and Jenny unfortunately commits suicide, mm. but the relationship between them, um, like Audrey says that this is like her first true, her first real love. And so this sure. is a, okay. clearly a precursor to her later relationships um so um she's working at this factory and she meets up with this woman named ginger and they're just like friends and hanging out um ginger is black as well i think and they so this is her first female lover like these this is the first time they actually hook up but ginger's and and a lot of the families and a lot of the other people in the in the story are willing to sort of tacitly acknowledge lesbianism, but like, don't be explicit about it. And in the case of Ginger's family, they're like, you're going to get married again. Cause she had been married and got huh. divorced. Like, and so Ginger go is, do it or whatever, but you're going to get married. Yeah. Like with the huh. understanding that you're going to, yeah, you're going to have a traditional marriage and that's, what's going to happen. I don't think that's a recipe for success necessarily. Yeah. Well, we don't hear a lot about Gin- Ginger after. So so she and Audrey are hooking up for a while, but Ginger is slowly spending more and more time with this other guy. Mm. And so and and Audrey eventually moves on, I guess. Okay. Okay. Um so she goes through a couple other lovers. There's one named B who lives in I think she lives in Philadelphia and she's just she's not responsive to <laughs> Like Audrey tells the story about like going down to Philadelphia and basically like getting a room in the YWCA and like going down on her all weekend. <laughs> like just Netflix and chill. Or just, just like chill. Only chill. <laughs> only chill. Only chilling. And B is just not. She's like, oh, that's nice. Like she's not. She's not very responsive. Oh, OK. Let's say. <laughs> so they break up. And, um, and like you said, um, Audrey goes to Mexico to go to school for a bit. Like this is, this is something that New Mexico. She doesn't go to Mexico. No, she goes to Mexico. She goes to Mexico. Yeah. Did I mention that? I don't know if you mentioned that, but she does go to Mexico. Oh, I did. Yeah, I did say that. Hmm. Hmm. Got Mexico and New Mexico mixed up there, didn't you? I don't do that very often. Weird. (laughs) She goes to old Mexico (laughs) to go to school. Because for for a while, like she's got this complicated relationship with New York, where it's like the place where she was raised and it's where her family is, and she just doesn't want to be there for a while. So she's like, she's at Stanford for a while, and she's saving up money, and she's like, I'm gonna go to Mexico. Like I'm just gonna get away. I'm gonna go down to Mexico. Gotta go south of the border. Yeah, down Mexico way. And so she goes down there, and she meets this older woman who had had breast cancer and is also an alcoholic. Her name is Eudora. Mm-hmm. And so they have a really intense relationship, but then um, Eudora like has a has like a couple alcoholic episodes and kind of pushes her away, and and so she goes back up to New York, and then she meets this woman named Muriel, and this is who the last third of the book mostly focuses on. Okay, is like this okay. is her first serious relationship. They move in together, 
and they say like forever. And of course they can't get married. They can't have like the external symbols of a, of a, of a forever relationship. Yes, yes. But this is, this is like a big real thing for her. Okay. And um, so Muriel is, um, she's been diagnosed with schizophrenia and she's undergone electroshock therapy, which I think we've alluded to on a couple other episodes, but like, what do you know about electroshock therapy? I know a little bit. It came up briefly last week when we were talking about invisible man, um, because it sounds like they gave it to him in one of the chapters. I, I saw some episodes of six feet under where character underwent ECT. Um, and I've, taught some playwrights that have written about it but not like specific not about the procedure itself um but it sounds like it's pretty debilitating and awful uh for, to just like endure even if it i don't think it's supposed to be i don't know if it's supposed to be super successful or not i've i've got a lot of stuff and so what i've what i've read about it and and rep- representations of it in in popular culture are usually like it's an outdated therapy usually given to women to like i don't know to make them forget or to like reset them in some weird way sure um so i've got a a lot from muriel about electroshock therapy that i, I can just read you the whole passage here great um Electric shock treatments are like little deaths, Muriel said, reaching across me for the ashtray. They broke into my head like thieves with an official sanction and robbed me of something precious that feels like it's gone forever. Sometimes she sounded angry and sometimes she sounded curiously flat, but however she sounded, it made my arms ache to hold her. Pieces of her memory had gone too, she told me, and that made Susie, her old New York lover, keeper of that piece of her past. It was the equinox and we lay smoking in bed in the evenness of springtime with summer already coming. Did it make anything better, I asked? Well, before shock, I used to feel this deep depression covering me like a huge bushel basket. But somewhere inside, at the very core of it all, there was a a little feeble light shining, and I knew it existed, and it helped illuminate chaos. She shuddered and lay silent for a moment, her lips tight and pale over her front teeth. But the thing I can never forgive the doctors for is that after shock, the bushel only lifted a little, you know what I mean? But the little light had gone out, and it just wasn't worth it. I never wanted to trade my own little flame, I don't care however crazy it was, for any of their casual light from outside." Um, All of this made me very sad. The only answer I had was to hold her tight. I swore to myself that I would never let that happen to her again. Sorry, I had a load time there. (laughs) I would do everything. I would do anything in the world to protect Muriel. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, that that jives with other portraits of ECT that I've seen. Yeah. Um, So so you have, you know, you have a, a, a woman with, um, just mental issues, I guess. I don't know if that's the best way to put that, but. Um, who who needs therapy and help that she is not being given because it's 1955 and it like doesn't exist yet? <laughs> yeah, I, I did a quick while you were while you were getting the passage ready. I did a quick run on ECT and like the Mayo Clinic website has some information that's like it's it can be useful for re- quickly reversing symptoms of certain mental illnesses. Um, it sounds like it might like in a pinch be okay for maybe obscuring like a short-term trauma or something i don't even but i don't even know the big issue is that it when it was first done and the mayo clinic admits this is that uh early treatments were done with high huge big like high doses of electricity without anesthesia and which, if you're gonna shock them like shock them good am i, I right oh my god <laughs> if you're gonna do it just do the thing but you know? <laughs> without anesthesia is that's you know what's going to contribute to memory loss and other serious side effects. And so I'm not advocating for, and but I'm also no, trying not to neither. advocate no, against. It's, it's, it sounds like any benefits are purely accidental. <laughs> it is a thing that people do, but it, it sounds like when when and if they do it now, uh, th- there are far more precautions taken and and things like that. But yeah. I, again, to your point, this was. At this part of the book, it's still what the fifties. I mean, and it, it never moves. It, it never. It's it's it never moves beyond the fifties in this okay. book. Like you, the bulk of of the stuff that you're getting is in the mid fifties. It doesn't move past this. Yeah. So so I don't. This think represented anybody... like the the cutting. The fact that they had therapists at all was still like a pretty new thing. Yeah, I don't think anybody was was, and and let alone for you know like, you're only going to get the best ECT if you have the money to pay for it you know you're mm-hmm. probably getting like 
whatever ECT they can offer. Well, then you've got like the back alley ECT where somebody's just got like a potato and a glass of water (laughs) and like jumper cables attached to it. That's the (laughs) Oh, man. And a sign that says, I'm eyes for you because it's potatoes. Yikes. Okay. Yeah. And then then you're like, weird alley doctor. Why did you brand your thing around potatoes? This is weird. And then your weird alley doctor would be like, boy, you're talking an awful lot. Just now open your mouth. <laughs> I hate you, Alley Doctor. <laughs> Why do I keep coming back here? <laughs> Why are you covered by my insurance? <laughs> What's insurance? I don't know. So, yeah. So, so Muriel, th- there are early signs that... Like, Muriel tells her some things that Audrey now recognizes as, like, Muriel trying to warn her about her illness and like things that she's not going to be able to help. Sure. So like as she, she's going to move back to New York to live with Audrey and she says up front, basically like I, I can't stand to apply to jobs because the first no I get will just level me. Mm. Like I can't deal with that. Mm. And so she doesn't get a job. And so Audrey is the only earner and money is a constant issue for her throughout the entire book. Like she's talking about things in terms of, of dollars and cents and how much they cost, like pretty much the entire time. Mm. And so this kicks off this, this thing that's, that's never really, they never really address between them where Audrey subtly resents her for not being able to for not like being able to look for work and it it never gets addressed and it like steadily grows into this thing. And then Muriel starts like they have a third person who they incorporate into their relationship for a while. And this opens the door to Muriel um, having other lovers where um, at least with like with the first person, the understanding is still that Muriel and Audrey are the permanent two and then this other person is sort of an outsider, which which leads to this third person leaving eventually and taking all their money. Um, Oh, okay, good. But like as as time goes on, that understanding between them dissolves and they stop being able to talk about it. And then Muriel sort of exits her life in in phases Mm. And she just slowly becomes not around anymore. And by the time that happens, you're pretty much at the end of the book. Like you get a very short um, affair with this woman named Kitty who has a kid and who like it's it's sort of a casual fling. Like they hook up with each other and they have a fun time. And then Kitty leaves to go like take care of her kid. Mm. Um, But it's sort of a it's a relationship that sort of helps to thaw her out after being burnt by her first long-term it's it's I guess if you wanted to characterize it, you could just say it was a rebound sort of relationship. I was going to, I was going to ask like if that's how the mural relationship ended, like how does the book, what, what landing does the book stick? If you're Audrey Lord writing your, your autobiomythography and you (laughs) like, and the if close to the end is this very important relationship didn't work out like what is the what is the last swoop there what do you leave us with and if it's if it's the sense of and then i it's you know stuff still works is that yeah i mean like the last bit of the book before the epilogue we come together like elements erupting into an electric storm exchanging energy sharing charge brief and drenching then we parted past reformed reshaping ourselves the better for the exchange i never saw kitty again but her print remains upon my life with the resonance and power of an emotional tattoo so not a long relationship not an especially serious relationship but the relationship that she really needed at that point in her life and sort of ending the ending the book on an up or like optimistic note, I guess. Instead those relas- of, yeah, those yeah. relationships are important. Shout out to shout out to constructive rebounds. Shout out shout out to the rebounds. Shout out to the rebounds out there doing doing everybody's work. Helping everybody out. <laughs> Cause sometimes you just need to learn to love again. Um so you had asked earlier, and this is the note that we can close on, I guess. Yeah. Um, you'd asked earlier about um, intersectionality, sure, and about 
Um, so, so a lot of what Audrey deals with in this book has to do with, so she's in the, she's in these two major communities. She's in the gay community, but she's also black. And there are not a lot of other like black people in this community, like to the point where they all know each other, even if they don't really hang out or like each other all that much, except in emergencies. Um, but it's it's such a small group that they all do like know each other's names and their basic deals and stuff. Um, the fact of our blackness was an issue that Felicia and I talked about only between ourselves. Felicia is another black lesbian in this in this culture. Um, even Muriel seemed to believe that as lesbians, we were all outsiders and all equal in our outsiderhood. Mm. Um, and like, can I say the N word in the context of a quote? I feel uncomfortable saying it, but it also. I don't want to like rob the quote of its power, you know. You, this is us having like an editorial meeting, you, like live on the thing. You can. How about you try it, and then we'll see. Okay, this will be cool. All right, uh, we're all niggers. She used to say, and I hated to hear her say it. It was wishful thinking based on little fact. The ways in which it was true languished in the shadow of those many ways in which it would always be false. And so I think that that really gets at what intersectionality is about right is yeah. like saying that you saying that you belong together as women or as gay people and you do have some of the same struggles but to equate them or to say that you are the same just because you share those struggles mm-hmm. it elides over some really important stuff yeah totally like there's the like there's a um there's another little anecdote where um, Audrey is out. I don't remember if it's with if with Muriel or with another like white woman, but um, a, like an old lady sitting on a stoop basically gets up and goes to the white woman she's with and says like here here's this skirt like here's a skirt that you can wear, mm. basically saying to her like if you just try this like straight lifestyle or this like traditional female lifestyle, like you're salvageable. That's cool. And Audrey says, you know, I've passed these women a million times and none of them has ever tried to like, give me a skirt and like quote unquote (laughs) save me or whatever. Okay. Like that's her, you that's part of her struggle is like, even if, even if she were totally straight, even if she totally presented as female, even if there were no other, anything's like by being black there is still this mm. huge mm-hmm. part of her that is not going to be accepted by mm-hmm. mainstream culture like even in even in new york city where there are these small spaces where gays can find each other and like things about their their lives are like understood you know yeah oh no i i, I agree it's, and i was also interested glad you cited at least like one or two of the for lack of a better word, sexier parts of the book. Steamy. Uh, because there there was a quote of hers I found um, that's lifted from an essay called The Erotic as Power, where she's also talking about um, sexuality and obviously eroticism. And um, she dismissed the false belief that only by the suppression of the erotic within our lives and consciousness can women be truly strong. Uh but that strength is illusory for it is fashioned within the context of male models of power. So the idea of like to, you know, get ahead as women is to like tamper down your own sexuality so that you can like better present in a male oriented world is a falsehood. As you, you kind of said, like there are false equivalencies that Audrey Lord is willing to just point out left and right. <laughs> like, nope, you don't need to do that. You're still you in the ways that are you. And you can draw strength from that. Screw those other guys. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, beat. Use use what is making you you, and identify it, um, rather than conform it to all sorts of these like bigger labels. Um, yeah, there yeah. are a lot of like really explicit sexual images in the book. Um, just to to like follow up on that thing because you just mentioned it. One of the ones that I liked a lot was actually toward the end. She's at this party where she meets Kitty, mm. and um, she's talking about this beef platter that they have. <laughs> and she says the the centerpiece of the whole table was a huge platter of succulent and thinly sliced roast beef set into an underpan of cracked ice. Upon the beige platter, each slice of rare meat had been lovingly laid out and individually folded up 
into a volvil pattern with a tiny dab of mayonnaise at the crucial apex. The pink brown folded meat around the pale cream yellow dot formed suggestive sculptures that made a great hit with all the women present and Pet, at whose house the party was being given and whose idea the meat sculptures were, smilingly acknowledged the many compliments on her platter with a long grace, a long-necked graceful nod of her elegant dancer's head. Okay. So like cool meat vaginas. <laughs> I didn't know that meat vaginas were going to factor into this biomythography, but I'm glad that they did. Well, surprise, surprise. <laughs> you never know what life's going to throw at you. Yeah, no, you know? life comes at you fast. It does. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think that's the book, right? Yeah, it's... Um, I, I don't... I always hate... I feel like we always are like, oh, I liked it. And that's partly because... I had that, you know, P.F. Kluge, that creative writing professor who I had, who we talk yeah. about sometimes, always made it clear that he was not interested in hearing whether we liked the thing that we read or not in our reaction to it. <laughs> That's true. That's but true. But it's, you know, it's uh, it gets to a lot of the stuff that we're talking about now with respect to, like, intersectionality and the ways that feminism can, like, needs to be wide enough to, like, encompass a lot of different people's experiences. Sure. Like, it, re- sure. it really drove home, like okay, just because you're gay, you're not all the same. Just because you're black, you're not all the same. Just because you're women, you're not all the same. Like it's, it it drives home just how complicated all this stuff is and just how deeply personal it is. When Like when people bring this stuff up, like in the context of the Women's March, I think it can be a natural reaction to feel attacked by it. Like sure. to say, okay, you're doing this thing and it's feminist, but it's still not good enough. It can be it can be discouraging to feel attacked by that sort of thing. and feel like, like even though you're trying to do this, that you're still not doing enough. But, but this book I think really highlights how, how deeply felt all this, all this stuff is and how important all this stuff is. Yes. Yeah. And how we all just need to be trying harder not to assume things about each other and not to assume that all of our experiences are shared, even if we're members of the same communities and, and that, and that sort of thing, you know? Yeah, no, I buy that. Um, that's part of the work. We do the work week in, week out here on yep. overdue. Mm-hmm. That's right. Except uh, when we're sick, except when we're sick. in which case we like maybe spend a day on the couch, like not, not doing the work, but not really helping anything either. Hey, it's, you know, you gotta take a breath. The rest of the chorus <laughs> will breathe for you. They'll sing the mm-hmm. note, and then you come back in when your breath is back. Yeah. Um, so if you want to write us about uh, your favorite Audrey Lord quote or something like that, you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on social media at facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. I want to thank first uh, Leona and Charlotte, who sent in notes in response to our Curious Incident uh, in the nighttime, curious incident of the dog in the nighttime episode. Um, in our working definition of autism for that episode, I cited a website, Autism Speaks, which is apparently an organization with uh, not a great track record within the autistic community because they do not center autistic voices. Um, I'm going to tweet out personally some links uh, about that. Uh, well, the, the criticism was specifically that they they always portray people of autism as like victims or yes. something like that. Was well, that the... yeah. And that, that comes from the fact that apparently, and maybe this has changed since some of this writing first happened, but uh, they only had maybe one autistic person on their board. And a lot of what they are advocating for are not actually like what autistic people want. It is, it sure. is mostly coming from, you know, the frustrated caregiver perspective, which is a valid perspective, but not one for something props called Autism Speaks. So you can find out other information um, at the Autism uh, Self-Advocacy Network. And then I will tweet out a couple other links from my own personal Twitter at MC Getting about this. So I just want to thank uh, Leona and Charlotte for reaching out about that because that stuff's kind of important. Yeah. Um, other folks who wrote in with uh, fun notes in the past week, Ellen, Cindy, Matt, Emily, Melissa, Sophie, Kate, Bob, Alicia, Elizabeth, Melissa, Hoops, Dan at the 25 O'Clock Podcast, Aaron, uh, Unearthenum, Dana, Tessa, Grace, Charlotte, William, Kate, Starfish, Chick, Megan, Carrie, Ella, R.A., Casey, Kelly, Katie, Becky, Barbara, Melanie, Camille, and Emily. Uh, thanks, y'all, for doing that. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? 
Uh, they can go to OverduePodcast.com where we have links to iTunes, RSS, and all the other feeds, uh, Stitcher and Google Play, I think, are the other two. <laughs> if you subscribe in iTunes, do uh, rate and review us because it helps us rise in the rankings and it helps other people find the show. Um, what else? Like We got Patreon. We got Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read if you want to read along. We get a small cut of that and it helps defray our costs and helps us upgrade equipment and do all kinds of stuff. Um, we've got links to Spreaker, our podcast host, and HeadGum, our podcast network. Thanks to both of them for helping us bring the show to you. And uh, thanks again to uh, the people at the Philly Podcast Festival and the Free Library in Philadelphia. And to everybody who bought tickets and came out to our live show yesterday. It was a really fun time. We, we as Like we said, we really want to do more of those both in Philadelphia and elsewhere. So if you have thoughts on those... Or if you have people you can hook us up with in other cities who can help us organize stuff, like please do drop us a line, um, and we we love to make that kind of thing happen. It's just sometimes it's a it's a time commitment thing on our part, and it's also an organizational thing on our part. So if you've got a door you can open that we can just like run through, like hit us, like we'll we'll listen. That's like our whole thing. That's our whole thing, man. Is like shoving our way through doors that someone else opened. Yeah. It's like opening pickle jars that somebody else has already <laughs> loosened up a little bit. Yeah, we started Craig, the podcast. You... It's your turn now. <laughs> Greg, what are you reading next week? I'm not reading anything next week. We have a special guest, uh, one Margaret H. Willison, who Maybe will be heard of her. discussing a Christopher Pike novel for next week. Um we think it's going to be last act, though it's apparently out of print. So we might be doing a last minute change, but we'll still be covering Christopher Pike. So she'll be here next week. Uh, and then I think you're going to be reading some John Irving after that. Right. Andrew. The week after that, I'll be doing the world according to Garp. So I'm going to figure out what Garp's whole the whole take on his twisted take on the world is. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be a it fun is. time, I think. I don't even know who Garp is. Well, we all know on February 27th. (laughs) Sounds good. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, as always, for your support. We will be back next Monday. And until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.